And they have a similar, yeah. Okay. They've got a similar backstory where uh, someone in like the 50s stole Trotsky's death mask and sold it. And, Sold it. and these two rival factions, who will both accuse one another of killing Trotsky, <laughs> um, are arguing about where it is. And so uh, he's trying to track down the death mask. And it's like, well, I can one-up you on that. Right. <laughs> that's good. Death mask? Hey, okay, that's like, what, third place. Yeah. Right. That's okay. But that's, it was It's still a facsimile. It's, it's simply a facsimile. It's not as good. It's not the real they shit. They should manufacture the masks and just wear them. Yeah, yeah, Everyone yeah, yeah. I would. Do. Shit, I would do that, man. Don the character mask of the revolutionary. T for vendetta. T for vendetta. Burgers, they got to get better security, man. Not just when he was alive, <laughs> but also when he was dead. Trotsky's entire. You know, and yet, I couldn't get into the library there. They would not let me in. What do you mean they wouldn't let you in? They, you have to wait for uh, Esteban or whatever to, to amble on in. And Esteban if he's not Trotsky? there, you can't go in. Yeah, oh, think, is that like his grandson or something? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think so. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, it's nice that it, there's still make work jobs for uh, Trotsky's ancestors. You know, Esteban. All right, uh, it's our Christmas New Year's episode. Ho ho ho! Thanks for sticking with us throughout the year. Yeah. Our guest is. Uh, uh, a Grinch-like imp who's been on the show before. <laughs> a man who goes by many names, but the the number one is friend. Friend of the show. Excellent returning champion, Eric John Russell. Thank you. Welcome. It's Welcome a, back. It's a pleasure to be here. More importantly, to see the both of you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We did uh, an episode, what, a couple of years ago on the Situationists? I think it was end of, end of 2020. Hmm. Okay. I think it was right before Christmas. Yeah, and it was actually our Christmas episode two years ago. We started a tradition that we failed to repeat <laughs> last year. Yeah, uh, where of course we have Santa come and deliver us a topic. Yeah. Huh. What's that I hear? Is those, are those sleigh bells? I oh my god! I hear sleigh bells. Somebody's up on the roof. Who in the world? I hear something. I hear some rustling in the chimney. Uh, come down now. Oh, <laughs> uh, here comes Santa. He's coming down the chimney. He's coming down the chimney. I, I see. I, I can. I can hear the reindeer oh, old stomping their cute little feet. And uh, oh my God, there he is. There's Santa with his big beard. Oh ho ho! Santa! Oh, it's Santa! Hello, oh my, God. my little antifada children. What a special Christmas event. <laughs> We do this every Christmas, you remember? I remember, uh, Santa. I come down the chimney and bring you a Christmas topic to podcast about. Yay! That's so exciting. Uh, Santa, 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 What? what's the Christmas topic this year? Allow me to open my big Santa Claus gift sack and pull it out. It's, oh, why, look at this. Oh, this is exciting. What is it, Santa? This year, your topic is the Ho-Ho-Holocaust. Oh, Santa. Thanks, Santa. Wow. Wow. You really didn't expect that. You read my letter. 
So I think we should revisit that tradition yeah. this year. No, year. I tell you, we uh, we've had good discussions about negationism before, and the way that like left communism or councilism, when um, thrown into the stew pot of French, um, you know, soixante huitard politics of the mid twentieth century, turns into anti semitism. I said the H word. What's that? Huitard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I said it with a soft ard. Um, <laughs> that was corny. <laughs> ride it out, dude. Yeah, ride just it keep out. Riding man. It. Um, yeah, and then uh, when you were here, of course, we talked about the situationists. Yeah, uh, we talked about the spectacle. We talked about you know uh, if if the work of Guy Debord and the Situationist International can be considered like a living body of work, like much of the Marxist canon. Uh, we talked about the spectacle today. I think we want to have kind of like a sort of broad. Discussion. We want to talk about uh, the Ho Ho Holocaust, but we also want to talk about Culture Kampf and all sorts of ah. other scary German derived things that uh, I don't know are fitting, I think, for this holiday season. Why are you looking at me to speak? <laughs> <laughs> so, where do we go from there? How do we start this baby off? We might even scrap that entire intro. No, we'll see what happens. No. We'll see what happens. Um, it was a live. We'll take it from Wheatard. From Wheatard. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm happy to have you here because you're a great friend of mine and also you do excellent work, not just on your own, of course, but with your journal uh, Cured Quail, uh, which there's two volumes out right now, right? Two volumes. Yeah, that's right. We take a very, very long time in between issues because one has to wait until there's enough adequate and satisfying material before producing a next. So well, big, big gaps in between. Yeah, but you don't have any institutional backing, this right? Is it's the, just also the case. Yeah, yeah. It's just an international cadre of mm-hmm. people who are interested in the same project, which is roughly what? Uh, it's, it's sort of the intersection of communist critique, uh, psychoanalysis, culture, art, all these things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, those are there's kind of an intersection of those different discourses to it. I mean, the question... Um, one of the fundamental questions for us is um, what is the status of culture today within the conditions of the capitalist mode of production, capitalist society? Uh, what are the ways in which we are both encouraged to produce and, and um, consume culture and what are the conditions under which we're unable to do those things? Mm, mm. So just generally, it's, uh, it, yeah, it's a, a sort of a journal centered around a kind of critical theory of uh, the role of art, aesthetics, culture within this uh, repugnant society that we're mm. living in. And so why focus on culture? Why not just be a pure economist or philosopher? Right. Well, I mean, I, I suppose the question is, um, you know, what is the status of the importance of everyday life in terms of our critique of society? Mm. Uh-huh. You know, what are the ways in which we are uh, experience the world or prohibited from experiencing the world? And what was always interesting to me is, okay, we can always, um, you know, critique this society based on the big the big topics of the day, right? But um, there's also a way in which, uh, you know, questions of culture become kind of, um, um, yeah, insignificant or merely symptomatic when we're faced with these big political questions. Mm. And so it was always um, kind of an open inquiry as to whether or not there's not some violence um, that we're reproducing by regarding questions of culture as epiphenomenal, Mm. you know, not as important. Um, Perhaps there is uh, grander stakes than we initially um, apprehend in you know the minutiae of what it means to sort of have uh, you know an aesthetic experience or, or just the way in which we relate to culture as it's produced. So that's a, a different sort of inquiry than say like we need to 
cancel this TV show mm. or critique this TV show for its racism or something or like buy Twitter and control the political dynamics on there. It's more about the, the way we relate to uh, elements of culture, including art, including media. Yeah. And the way those things are produced and reproduced, right? Produced and reproduced. But then it's like, okay, of course, we live uh, in a society with an abundance of culture. And it's very particular with very particular kinds of messaging, very particular kinds of content. Uh, but what about the form in which all that content appears? Forget if something's racist or not, but what if there's um, domination in the very forms of those of the way in which culture appears to us? Um, and this was kind of the, the question for us, not whether or not you know, the messaging is good or bad or whether the messaging advances a good political program or not, but what, is, what about the, the forms under which we experience culture today? What does that um, require from us, right? How do we psychologically deal with how culture appears to us today? What kind of subjects must we be, right, to engage in this kind of, um, you know, cultural bombardment that we experience? This is important stuff because, you know, when I hear the word culture, I reach for my off button on any particular podcast or piece of news media. Yeah, that was a reference to the to the famous thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply uninterested in the culture wars, and I'm deeply uninterested in the sort of cultural criticism that you get reading Twitter or Slate.com or even like the American conservative, you know, whatever side of the spectrum it is. But what I am interested in, and I think Cured Quail is a good way of getting into this world, is a critique of culture, as you said, not as epiphenomenal, but instead as like one instantiation of the totality that is bourgeois society, yeah. you know, the, the uh, material community of capital. And therefore then, you know, we have to, we interrogate culture on a, ultimately a historical plane because the idea of, and I got this from your book and I got this from your reading of Adorno, culture only arises as a sort of separate sphere of life with you know, the bourgeois revolution with the hegemony of liberal capitalism. Uh, culture as this thing that we can isolate and separate from political economy, separate from sociology, separate from history. It becomes a sort of entry point into knowledge of the world, but one that's separated from the totality in such a way that makes it seem as though it has a life of its own. Sure. When, when ultimately, you know, it's, it's, it's implicated in everything. It's a production yeah. day in and day out, just like production is production. Yeah, I mean, it's subject to the same um, division of labor, right, that uh, we experience on a day-to-day -day basis. But even the term culture is, is quite stupid. It's not really uh, illuminating. It doesn't really say anything, right, because when you start taking something like culture seriously, uh, the, the, the way in which we're, um, you know, in and out of culture, these, like, sort of arbitrary lines don't make sense. So it's, it's vague enough, right, to be totally unhelpful in terms of a diagnostic or an analytic, but at least uh, colloquially, you know, it, maybe it can enable us to sort of begin his, historicizing the way in which uh, we are experiencing the world today, right? And there was a time in which culture as culturation, right, uh, with the bourgeois revolutions became like a very particular sort of educational ideal mm. in which, right, we sort of uh, matured as a, as, a, as a civilization. Now, this, of course, becomes ideology for the bourgeois revolutions, and it's uh, dramatically uh, different from the way in which we understand the term culture today. But looking at that history, looking at that history sort of uh, allows you to sort of, um, yeah, in investigate the, the different ways in which, um, yeah, the artifacts of human civilization, you know, come to us and they're produced and 
how then through history they become mass produced and it, it basically opens up a way into history that way. One, uh, I think, example of, of how you do these criticisms at Cured Quail, I, I think of is, is from your interview in Book Forum when <gasps> you sort of go off on photography. Yeah, as <laughs> a while ago, Finally. maybe make you like summarize that discussion. And I thought it'd also be interesting to, to talk about that in, in, in view of uh, this critique of AI art that's ah. that's coming out, where people are starting deep fakes. People are starting to say like, we need to go back to photography and the photographer right. because now uh, you know it's all threatened by these robots. The photographers have had it too good for too long. Time to knock them down a couple pegs. I mean. My concerns there are just that we, uh, so I can appreciate photography, uh, not as an aesthetic experience, but for its documentational value. You know, I, I mean, I think it's quite, um, quite important and there can be some quite beautiful pictures produced. Um, but for, for me at least, and I think for the, the stakes of something like a work of art, um, I think the stakes of it are as serious as something like human freedom. And there's a way in which regardless of what, what particular art Regardless of the medium that we're talking about, um, there's a way in which um, different works of art uh, are capable of, of registering something like human freedom, even, mm. even its absence. And my concern of photography is that um, we get less of the residual of human freedom a as a work created by humans than we get something like pixelization. So the f photograph says more really about the technical apparatus of the machine itself than it does about... I don't know, um, the fact that it, it was created uh, independently from any kind of, you know, uh, rigid sort of rationality under which right, everything else is produced in this world. But that'd be like comparing it to like a painting or an illustration. You could compare it or music. Music's a oh, great okay. example. Mm, yeah. you know, music's a great example. And then, because, of course... Because photography has this pretense of, I've just recorded what exists. Right. Recorded, yeah, what exists, right? And then the problem there is like, okay... You haven't exactly recorded what exists. There's a mediation there between, right, the sort of development of the, you know, uh, aperture and the uh, sort of all the chemicals that are involved in producing photographs. And then, I mean, I'm, I'm just like a bit conservative this way where, like, mm -hmm. I'd like to sort of um, see in uh, a work of art some kind of semblance of human suffering or mm. some kind of semblance of, of the, the, let's say, the, the urge to be free. Mm -hmm. And when a um, work like photography or maybe this AI stuff, right, is, is couched so heavily with inhuman apparatuses, yeah, then I, I start to get a little queasy. Then I start to get a little uncomfortable. So, so presenting uh, pain, presenting suffering, presenting yeah. misery through art is actually a cry for freedom. Well, I, I would even say that within our everyday lives, we are systematically deprived of the ability to articulate our own suffering mm. right we have to put on a smile you know we have to put on a smile and when somebody does express their suffering it's a bit taboo mm. you know and you shouldn't you, that, that person's crying on the subway yeah jesus let's move over mm -hmm. so just the ability to give expression to suffering i think is already a utopian gesture mm. and if somehow aesthetic experience or a work of art is capable of doing that and i think it's not always and increasingly less so, uh, then um, I'm not really, uh, yeah. It, it seems like we're, we're comfortable with uh, experiencing suffer in art or in culture um, mm -hmm. from like an ironic distance. 
You know, it seems possible because there's all these ways in which the, the culture industry, let's call it, is able to like to call out to us to recognize uh, a particular condition, uh, whether that's a show like White Lotus, where I don't know if you've seen it, but it's like this really interesting meditation on wealth and anime and sort of striving, but also the sort of ironic failings of, of everyday life. Um, and it takes place at a, a beach resort, which is very situationist. So, <clears> yeah, like Club Med style. The misery of the vacation. That right, yeah, it's around. about the misery of the vacation. Yeah, exactly right. And so we look at this when we encounter it, when we view it. You know, we're obviously not on the Med. We're not at the White Lotus Resort. We're like looking at people whose circumstances and their misery are a relative approximation of ours, but at a distance in which like it's kind of neutered in a way and we, mm. we can stand back. I feel like irony or I'm not sure if irony is the right word, but mm. like um, a critical distance is so important to the way in which all of us perceive culture these days. I think it's true. I mean, I have an article coming out in the next issue of uh, radical philosophy and it's called as uh, uh, why the customer is always right. Mm. And it's basically about the failure of that critical distance. So that failure would be the way in which we look at objects of culture or art and immediately identify with it. Yeah, we can find the, the television show or the film depicting things as they are. You know, no, everybody loves based on a true story. Right, right, right. You know, so the way in which uh, products of industrial culture depict things with utter transparency, right, as they are in their exactitude. Of course, there's embellishment and things like this. But, you know, you recognize uh, the buddy in, in the picture. You know, you recognize the bar. It looks, you know, just like your bar. Mm. I think that's a, a collapse of that critical distance, mm. enabling us to then directly identify with those images. And in, in so doing, justify, justify that situation, mm. right? The world on the screen becomes a direct replication Mm. of the misery of our own world. And when we identify with those images, then we are, in fact, justifying them. Right, right. Collapsing yeah, that distance completely. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can you try to talk into the mic a little uh, more? Like, I don't have to like, talk right into it, but sorry. it's closer. Yeah, no, I do the same I thing. wanted I to talk to my friends, not that. No, no, no. you got to talk to the okay. machine. Well, there's, there's the a, apparatus. That's right. The apparatus, right. There's, um, you know, I think an interesting, again, takeaway from uh, your your article on... Um, partially about social media, about the way in which we have this totalizing social system, you know, we call the material community of capital, we call capitalism, whatever it is, in which it seems as though progressively, you know, and certainly over the last 30 or 40 years, the there is an attempt to create, to like recreate that totality in a mediated fashion, especially through things like social media, yeah. right? Uh, a way of like, it's not even like a, a critical distancing. It's like a distancing of ourselves into social media, into Twitter, into Facebook or whatever. And so it, it seems like these things that we're identifying are, are happening in a deeper and deeper way. Mm. Yeah. What you just said remind me of, um, I, I heard this uh, other podcast this week where uh, it, our friends, Neoliberal Hell podcast, they had on Cobra Snake. Remember that guy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Photographer from, the, uh, from parties and stuff. Yeah. From like the 2000s hipster scene. This guy would, you know, go to misshapes or whatever ah, and take pictures that. in dark rooms of just people ah. looking either, you know, sometimes really good, but like not expecting to have a picture taken. They're in the middle of puking or whatever, yeah. making out in the corner, doing drugs. Yeah. And that became candid, candid right? Mm -hmm. That became sort of that became this genre of party photography, which became a huge part of like the aesthetic of vice and like mm -hmm. the hipster moment. Yeah, that's good. And 
What's so different about that than what we see now on Instagram, for instance, is everything is posed, not only posed, but then also touched up with these various filters. Um, So the representation of what culture is looks a lot different now than it did in the 2000s when things were sleazier and drunker and just more decadent and gross and you know that's that's i think why it's such a huge part of that culture was the do's and don'ts sections of Mm -hmm. vice Mm -hmm. because you had people looking good and or bad and then you could just sort of make fun of it and there's a sort of self-referential an element of cynicism about the culture itself yeah 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 it wasn't yeah. trying to perfect everything the way the Instagram culture does today. Yeah, but I'm okay. I don't think the the touching up or the perfection is really the problem. I mean, I think the crux of the problem can be seen in that early example where, you know, people want to, uh, you know, see Santa without his beard. People want to see the celebrity with their pants down. There want to be these vulnerable mo- moments of depicting how things actually are. People despise illusions, mm-hmm. right? They want to know how the magic trick is done. They despise it. They want proof. You know, they want bare facticity. They, they do not want illusion, right? Which is, then brings us to the question of then why art becomes so unimportant. Why culture mm-hmm. beca- becomes so unimportant. Because at least for modern art, uh, illusion was something important, right? Illusion was something that could be um, played with. One didn't have to just depict kings. Mm. One could depict, you know, certain, you know, social situations, but with all different kinds of different styles that allowed illusion to embellish certain things. And um, we today, I think we live in a very intolerant society for illusion. Mm. Mm. And and this is, of course, part and parcel of like this deep and pervading. Uh, cynicism and malaise uh, yeah. that's existed, I, I guess, for generations now. I mean, at least from when I was a kid, you know, everything, what we got handed down from us from the boomers and then, you know, from the Gen X uh, was a pervasive sense in which everything was fake. Everyone was a phony yeah. and that there was, um, you know, the the life's goal was to find some element of authenticity. Yeah. Well, yeah. especially in like the era of anti-globe authenticity against material culture, against um, the sort of acquisitiveness of everyday life against the materialism of consumerism or whatever, which seems like a million fucking years ago now because, <laughs> you know, even radical politics don't really use that much, the, these sort of terms. Yeah, anymore. no one cares if you wear a, a Nike swoosh today. It's, no, no. That's but it's actually the, cool. Yeah, it's actually cool. But in like the 2000s, you'd be called a, a genocide. Or yeah, you were a sweatshop. <laughs> yeah. You were, you were per, uh, like Selling. a, yeah, you were, um, you know, allowing sweatshops to exist. The sweatshop campaign is really funny. I was just reading about it recently how the sweatshop campaign of the 90s if people remember Kathy Lee Giffords famously got in big trouble uh, for using sweatshop labor in like Vietnam or something in order to make her you know (laughs) like down market clothes for Macy's or whatever these were pushed by the needle trades unions you know and they're fighting for workers overseas and it seems like this great thing the whole thing was cover where uh, in places like New York City and in the south and in Los Angeles where the needles needle trade still existed standards were going so low and contracts were being being broken to such an extent that some of these workers were making two dollars three dollars an hour uh it, within the union <laughs> so I, I don't know what sort of displacement that means right there but like i don't know even where that sidebar went but so, so the anti-sweatshop campaign was trying to bring like more jobs to these American sweatshops is what you're Basically, saying. Basically, yeah. yeah. These they like were American trying to cut, They were trying to bring better sweatshop jobs back home to the United mm-hmm. States. And that's so that's like what activism was essentially. <laughs> it was like various different like left institutions attempting to like, you know, take uh, exploitation abroad and bring them back home. I don't know how we got off the well, I mean, train it, on it that. It sort of seems like what you're 
your sort of uh, thing about the inauthenticity, your comment about it, because there's this deep cynicism of yeah. like fashion, for example, uh, like, oh, you've got this brand of clothes, but who's making it? People in right. sweatshops. But then that gets channeled into this politics of we need to use union sweatshops instead. Right. Like there's there's both a cynicism towards the the object and then at the same time it's just reproduced in this other way. The cynicism just helps reproduce it. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, it's and obviously a- like Instagram is everyone uses it. And it's not like there's rules where you have to use filters or something and people use it the way they want to do it. But then there is this broad cynicism of it. this like feeling like it's fake and it's a problem. Yeah. But I mean, even, yeah, I mean, even without that though, I mean, even, okay. So you, if you ask someone, you know, who's like really involved in those things and they're aware that they're doing all the touching up and that, you know, they're just giving a version of themselves, you know, they're not like deluded in, in such a way where, you know, they're, they're convinced, you know, that, uh, you know, I mean, that, you know, that's actually, oh, what am I trying to say? Hold on. Um, they know the cynicism is like, they're just as much aware of it, right, as other people are, right? They're, they're aware of the pretense and that's okay. And that's okay. What does Sorry. it do for like, um, you know, for for the conception of the spectacle, which is a fifty-year-old yeah. conception, or or older than that, maybe sixty-year-old conception at this point in time, that the consumption of images has really only ratcheted up, you know, especially in recent times. I mean, are we even in an even deeper spectacle? Is it a continuation? Are we post-spectacle now? What, what what's your take on that? I mean, I think the board gives us a, a strong diagnosis uh, of a society um, dominated by appearances. I don't like using images because you get all these sort of cultural critique associations. And if we stick with the, uh, the notion that capitalism has developed to, to some kind of extent in which people are dominated by um, their own forms of social mediation as appearances, we can connect that directly to Marx's critique of political economy and the way in which value itself only really exists through its forms of appearance, right? So the commodity, money, capital, and all the other forms of appearance. Um, if we're sort of holding on to this, kind of that lineage of what Debord is doing, and we're also rejecting the notion that the critique of the spectacle is a critique of consumerism, mm. which I think is important, um, then there's a way in which Debord's diagnosis sort of exceeds the historical moment in which he was writing, right? Mm. Then, it, then it sort of subsists beyond post-war prosperity in which, right, we're just criticizing, you know, affluence or something or like Fordism. this. Or Fordism. Or Fordism, right? There's a way in which um, uh, we're constantly sort of, um, you know, engaging with a, a appearances of this society, but not but appearances of social unity, of social harmony. And so... Um, Right, as long as capitalism still requires a sort of uh, structural reproduction of appearances itself, as 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 a reproduction of the system of value itself, as a mystification, but also as its own self production, yeah. it's real. Yeah. Th- then I think the board's diagnosis just holds up, right? Of course, we shouldn't be sort of distracted too much about um, right the very particular you know phenomena that he's identifying in in the late sixties and throughout the sixties. Club Med, baby. Right, yeah, <laughs> but there's like still a way, you know, in which um, uh, you know, poverty has the you know the appearance of individual responsibility, right? There's a way in which uh, right um, a kind of redistribution of wealth appears as socialism, right? Mm. I mean, they're all all these. I mean, very central is that he's writing 
at a time when, like, it was if you had a wildcat strike that was frowned upon by the left, because why are these workers doing something outside the form of appearance of class struggle, which is the Communist Party led unions? Exactly, right, exactly. Right. Yeah. So he transposes this. I think he he takes this structure of appearances that we find in and Marx's critique of political economy, and he just sort of. Um, uh, recognizes it at the level of a totality, right? So mm. it's the appearance of workers' organization, right? It's the appearance of culture. It's the appearance of uh, history and time or temporal experience, mm. right? And all of those things don't go away with the crises of the 70s. Yeah, no, for <laughs> sure. If anything, they change. And, and of course, the crisis of the 70s led to a whole other different regime of accumulation and sort yeah. of cultural apparatus, which is now, it's in it, as we know, itself in crisis and, and in the process of potentially, quote-unquote, stabilizing as something new. Yeah. And I think maybe as a way to get us back to, uh, to anti-Semitism, is to, if I can pull this off, it'll be pretty incredible, <laughs> is that one of the things that DeBoard is talking about in the 60s with the spectacle too and this, uh, this, this false unity uh, is, of course, the Soviet Union as well. Mm. And we're now 30-something 30 oh, yeah, 30 years since the collapse of that particular uh, form of appearance uh, yeah. of, of society. Um, we're, we're so far away from that now that it's seen, and, and, and the, the, the class struggle uh, or like the social conflicts that exist in society are rising to the point that people are seeing fit both on the left, on the, on the quote unquote communist left, uh, and also, of course, on the right as well see fit to sort of grab in a pastiche sort of fashion like appearances from the 20th from the 19th and the 20th century whether it's Nietzsche or whether it's yeah. Hoja or whatever it is try and grasp something from the past in order to try to bring a future into existence that isn't just the same yeah and so but but of course it's that's not necessarily or on its face the production of something new and so it seems like these sort of appearances spinning in their own circles yeah yeah. I mean, there's something I wrote about this. Anti-Semitism, of course, is one of those. Right. <laughs> I mean, I wrote, th I wrote about this in my book a little bit, but there is something, I like the way you use the word pastiche there, because uh, I argue that there's something um, about the structure of the spectacle that is uh, fundamentally Baroque. And what I mean by that, pulling together many different elements, right, qualitatively different things, and giving it some kind of coherence as a whole. Right. There's something inherently anachronistic about that so that even one's, you know, social media feed. Right. If you're going down the social media feed, there's no right. You might get like, you know, Holocaust denial. You might get appeal to help me pay my rent. You might get, you know, all different kinds of things, oh, wildfires, yeah. all, all these different things. Um, but in that form, in that form, they all kind of have like an equal standing. Right. There's something inherently pastiche about it. And the question is, okay, well, then what does that, the form organized in such a way, what does that do to the individual things that you're actually seeing? Because mm -hmm. they become commensurable, just yeah. like commodities become commensurable. Exactly. So yeah. th that's the other key. I think the board's notion of the spectacle is the direct inheritor of Marx's concept of money that way, right? The sort of principle of exchange and the commensurability of qualitatively different content and different phenomena. I think that's uh, one of the central logics of money and also really one of the uh, central, what I call the spectacular logic of the spectacle is to render commensurable that which isn't. So, so we talked about this in the last episode when we were talking about Musk, but I, I have this idea that if he was a little bit better at marketing what he's trying to do with Twitter, he would appeal to this high liberal sense that 
Twitter can become this public sphere where everybody can appear and, you know, have, you know, a reasoned civil intercourse and come out with like a, a good political debate or political ideas. Right. But also a big part of what he's trying to do is rearrange the algorithm so certain kinds of discourse are elevated and certain kinds are sunk. And he, he actually at one point says negative kinds of uh, discussion will be deprioritized and hidden. Okay. Um, even if you pay. So I, so like I, it, it seems consistent with what you're saying in terms of like, okay, you put out a tweet, you put out this like little unit of communication, yeah. and then the based on how people interact with it, or based on like how a, a robot reads the, uh, you know, the um, niceness of your uh, phrasing, yeah. it'll be placed higher up on the market. It'll have more chance to appear. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's a really attractive idea to, to some people. Like, what if we could, you know. Uh, socially engineer the public square so right. people can just be nice to each other and mm, chat right, and be right. you know, calm. Yeah, but you'd have to take seriously what it means to have a public sphere, right? When, right. when we say public sphere, we presuppose a lot of things that don't exist anymore, right? Mm. like rational subjects. Mm. Um, mm. It, it's a very strong, right, bourgeois ideal and a very revolutionary one, the public sphere. Mm-hmm. But um, the social conditions for its existence are already on their way out. So, so you, don't even, the you don't think civil society can exist in a way that it used to? Uh, I mean, it can only exist in the sense of civil society like uh, uh, privatization of individuals and the social relations in and through that. So publicness, I mean, it's largely a liberal delusion. You know, I mean, it was good for 18th, beginning of the 19th century. But as an ideal now, I mean, it, um, you have to take seriously the damages that human beings have incurred over the last century mm. and whether or not there, there are subjects, right, capable of rational deliberation. So it's not even a question of having the appropriate space. It's that people aren't able to express and interact with one another. And people are beaten. I mean, uh, they're beaten mm. in terms of uh, the, their capacity to not just converse with each other, but also to, like, look around and look at the world. You know, mm. I mean, there's a real fundamental hostility um, people experience when the world starts to kind of break in on them a little bit or, or that at least they are um, sort of willing to let's say, pursue a different line of engaging with the world other than just projecting their own damages upon it mm. and a kind of pathological projection to go to anti-Semitism. A little yeah, bit. yeah. I mean, obviously that was really redolent of, of anti-Semitism, of course, because if you're talking about the sort of like the historical movement, the historical development of various types of unfreedom, you yeah. know, like unfolding in a contradictory fashion, you without a totalizing analysis, and I'm not saying that the three of us or the listeners out there, you know, being largely from the communist, you know, milieu have the, all the answers. Right. But without a totalizing critique, then you have to start looking for some agent, of course, yeah. of of these changes, yeah. um, a historical agent that is powerful enough to both be the sort of acids of modernity or post-modernity or post-post-modernity, whatever it is, on the one hand, destroying traditions, destroying like the ancient trains of hierarchy or whatever, uh, but also at the same time um, creating capitalist um, f- forms of capitalist domination and exploitation that are world-spanning and centralized uh, and 
corrupt to the point that like, you know, there has to be some actor behind the scenes doing these things. And of course, Uh, then uh. you either have the lizard people or you have uh, some other cabal. But it's very easy, I think, for real historical reasons. And maybe if we are Postonians for real, like historical, logical reasons to point to that actor being, of course, like a different ethnic group, an ethnic group with like high trust and one that like spans different continents. One, you, you know, well, you know where I'm going with this. And so anti-Semitism, as I think we argued in the past a lot on this show, then um, is, isn't just simply like the Jew hating of the sixth or 16th century under capitalism. It becomes something much deeper and it, 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 it takes on that logic itself. It has to express, you know, the particular forms of domination and exploitation of capitalist society in these ethnic terms, especially after the nationalist revolutions of the 19th century and the the desire for a sort of like romantic ethno-national thing, which we're seeing right now replaying itself in Eastern Europe. Hmm. You know, I don't think it's a surprise that, that there's these sort of vanguard forces of anti-Semitism existing in Eastern Europe at this time. Are you talking about like on both sides of the war and Ukraine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Whether it's Wagner, Wagner or Wagner group on the one hand, uh, or it's the Azov battalion on the other, you know, there's a zone right now, um, of the world that's having, uh, I guess to use a term like unequal and combined development, uneven and combined development of nationalism at Mm. this point in time, like taking all of the, 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 the sort of destructions of nationalism of the 19th and 20th century and like bringing them into a modern format. And when this arises, this like romantic ethnic nationalism, when it returns, it takes on those trappings of the past while being like, even more dangerous and, and, and more post postmodern, I guess. I don't mm. know. I just thought of that off the top of my head. That might be total <laughs> bullshit, but what no, do you think? No, I mean, I think the, uh, the appeal uh, for agency is, is an important one. I mean, it, uh, whether or not that's being um, translated into appeals for nationalism or for new, you know, uh, revolutionary subject, mm. um, People have experienced such impotence and powerlessness for such a long time that the appeal for agency mm. or empowerment, uh, even in a demonic form, yeah, as even, like an agent, even as exists, an enemy, as an right? enemy, even as, as someone pulling yeah. the strings, right? Right. Or it's you know uh, the sort of like positive social movement, right? But there's the agent that is going to sort of um, either you know stop us from uh you know making the world and the image that we want or uh we become the agent or some kind of collective body becomes an agent and um i'm, I'm, I'm i don't know this frightens me a little bit this, 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 i'm not convinced that the question of revolutionary agency is makes makes much sense today um because I mean, the demand for agency, right? The the demand for power over, right, is a demand for domination. Mm. It is a demand for domination. Uh, whether that's you know we have agency over you know what Mother Nature is is uh, you know responding with or something like this, or it's uh, you know we reject the the hidden agency that's like you know putting children in pedophile rings. I don't know what the fuck. I mean, the old uh, the old agency or like the old good side of agency, of course, was the proletariat and its dictatorship or or the dictatorship of the councils or or whatever so that would be the one that like Guy Debord would point to uh in the in the 20th century yeah but you have the of course the demonic agency these days of 
the the Jews or the demonic agency. If you're you mm. know part of the sort of vital center in the United States, the demonic agency of Vladimir Putin. Okay, you know okay. who also yeah. kind of yeah. takes on the trappings of like a a force that stands astride history and is able to move things in particular directions. And I think I mean to to make this to to like basically come clean on this. I think it's all a cope. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. all like complete cope because ultimately like, you know, we're, we're talking about when we talk about things in historical logical terms you know, over, you know, things changing and developing over hundreds of years, we have to isolate this as a, as a structural or a system logic, uh, the sort of increase the, um, the accumulation of dispossession, the accumulation of domination, the accumulation of appearance. You know, we need to see this as a deeply structural thing. Yeah. But the desire to fall back on agency, mm -hmm. bad agency, the bad guys making all these things happen yeah. is like a powerful one. Yeah, I um, I'm, I have a book coming out next year, uh, next summer on MIT Press, and it's a it's a translation. But I also wrote an introduction for it, and the introduction is like half the book. <laughs> but the book itself is by a kind of situationist. But after the situationist, you know, Jamie Semprim. No. He wrote a, uh, he was like a friend of DeBoard, and he wrote a, a, a dictionary, a critical dictionary of all the most popular French intellectuals huh. of the mid-70s. So like Foucault, Lyotard, Deleuze, and each entry is just insult, insult, <laughs> insult, like brutally insulting him. And I was thinking about like uh, the significance of this intervention, right? Because it seems as if if you're putting so much focus on individuals mm. um, that you're missing some kind of like broad structural situation that you just, you describe. But then on the other hand, right, there are like problems of this world that people are, do have an active role in, right? Oh, for sure. They yeah. do have names and addresses. Yeah. So on the one hand, of course you want to sort of um, emphasize in your critique, right? The sort of diffuse nature of domination today and that, you know, relying too heavily on pointing the blame, at individuals is, you know, where, you know, how we get an analysis of anti-Semitism, for example. Mm. But on the other hand, right, there is, uh, I think there is merit in like looking at how it is that these personifications mm. of abstract processes uh, have real efficacy in the world. Right? Oh, I think so too. Have real efficacy. And it's the balance. Yeah, it's, it's the, the balance. balance between that, that I think uh, any serious revolutionary strategy should be considering. Yeah, and there, and I and and you say that too. There's maybe like some sort of mediation between. So you have like the totality on the one hand, and then you have individuals on the other hand. So where do we meet together? I mean, it's not enough to say like finance, because then if yeah, you say yeah. like, well, we're thinking structurally, but we're isolating finance as a particular moment in capital accumulation that we see as like this evil globalizing force. Well, then you're in a systemic analysis, but you're still not really close to the target or you're getting maybe closer to the target yeah but you're not on so th the ultimate question is yeah like you said how do you fucking take like the diserata of everyday life uh of not just culture but of politics and the economy mm -hmm. and and the individuals therein and then combine that with a totalizing critique i mean maybe it means making a list of like the thousand two hundred billionaires and thinking about what sort of like hall or stadium you could fit them in <laughs> i don't know i don't know i don't yeah, have all I, the answers but. Th this line of thought makes me think about the various attempts i've had to like organize at work or at an okay. apartment building or something and you might start out with a situation where people consider themselves leftists right or they don't like the boss, or they don't like the landlord or something, you actually can't get very far because people don't actually want to struggle together 
in their own situation. Like they would prefer to, you know, support some other group of, let's say, you know, undocumented workers instead, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or say like, we're privileged in this building. We should, if we're going to do tenant advocacy, it shouldn't be for ourselves. It should be for like tenants who are in a worse situation. They might be fighting a good campaign somewhere else, but this is a way of like turning away from your own life and your own situation. And just having a boss that you know sucks or a job you know sucks or a landlord you know sucks just isn't enough to actually get people to fight, which I think raises questions about the totality in terms of do people actually not like the totality? Do people actually want to live in a communist world when they seem comfortable with like getting ripped off on rent or uh, getting ripped off by their boss? Because it allows them to have their various passions, including activism, leftist right. activism. Yeah, shit. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it's a it's a difficult thing, right? Because everyone, uh, we can always point to something that's 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 much worse. But uh, I'm but I'm a little bit uh, selfish here and <laughs> thinking that yeah, the point of departure for for any of my political engagements or activities in the past, right, has, has always been my, my immediate circumstances. And that might even be me jumping into some other struggle, but it's, yeah, it's uh, mostly because, you know, when you're involved in struggle, you know, you're not just sort of like uh, sacrificing your time and energy for some cause and independently from you, but that, uh, you know, you undergo change, you, you, you know, reinvent social relations, you know, in those experiences. And, you know, um, life can be, uh, you know, pretty drab otherwise. So to put everyday life like this at the forefront, I think rem- remains probably one of the m- more revolutionary beginnings that, that one can have when engaging with politics. When we talk about everyday life, because of course there's Raoul Vanagem. Did I pronounce that correctly? It's fine. Vanagem. So. We should uh, have him on the show. He's still around. Is he really? Yeah. He's got to be ancient now. He's old. He's like the um, the like the quotidian counterpart to, to Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle. He's like the one you want to you want you feel you know in your gut. Once you master the critique of everyday life, you cannot die. <laughs> oh wow, that's incredible! Damn, we should have him on the show. I need to learn. Yeah, I'm Van trying. I- I'm looking for the founder. It's like Yoda. <laughs> Vanagam is actually one of the entries in this critical dictionary. <laughs> mm. What's what's the critique? Uh, well, the critique is that. Um, I mean, it's the same kind of critique you find in uh, some writings about Van Agam by DeBoard towards the end of the SI, where uh, Van Agam would increasingly show up to the meetings and he would have like, you know, his groupies um, and he would not say a word and then he would just leave with his groupies. Oh, wow. And so it became an issue where the problem of the pro situ, right, yeah. this, this sort of diagnostic indicating the end of, that the SI should end, um, was sort of uh, largely in part like an invention of the way in which Van Eigen was approaching the organization itself. They're just jealous about how much he's getting light. <laughs> no, I mean, there's, I mean, the thing about this dictionary is that there's a lot of like personal graphic attacks, oh. you know? So like they, they, they chastise him, for example, during May 68, you know, this famous story where he, he had a booked holiday in the Mediterranean. No, I didn't hear this. And, Please. So, so, and then things started kif- kicking off in Paris. So Van Agam's like, okay, uh, they're having an occupations movement. You know, members of the SI were in the Sorbonne and stuff. Sure, yeah. And so there was uh, the committee to maintain the council's occupation. And um, so Van Agam comes up, uh, you know, to the north of France. He puts his name on this track saying, you know, support the occupation. Mm. And then he just bolts back down <laughs> to his holiday. <laughs> and so, like, it's like per- vicious personal things like this yeah. that are, um, on the one hand, a bit like, okay, yeah, maybe we can also critique him for some inadequacies of his ideas, too. 
but come on, there's a way in which the conduct of individuals ought to be evaluated mm-hmm. in accordance with whatever it is they're saying. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I mean, what's, so like, how does a uh, revolution of everyday life, um, you know, how does it look today, 50 years later, the book? Like, what, have you, you got, you read it recently? Yeah. Um, does it, Andy's in it. Does it age it. well or? That's a good I, question. Ask me in 10 so minutes. It's about like the boredom of everyday life and it's about like overcoming uh, the separation. Between- well, I mean, it's, I, I feel like the way people talk about it is like, oh, DeBoard's written this like very political Marxist economic text that like gets into the structure of capitalist totality. Mm. And then Benigam talks about the more molecular experience. But I don't feel like that's, that's really it. It's talking pretty central to the book is this idea that people are slaves without masters. Uh, that like people don't aren't actually dominated by the boss or the landlord that they've actually um, in some way yeah or just have chosen a form of submission and what it would look like to rebel against that that isn't just um, you know trying to embolden the workers movement to more effectively organize capitalist exploitation yeah I mean where do you like where does the derive go you know, so like the derive right, is this uh, this SI, the Situationist International, coming out of the lecherous conception of mm. like breaking with the sort of, you know, mon- monotonous, everyday, you know, commodity driven nature of life in Paris in the 1950s by like purposely getting yourself lost and like experiencing place and time in a political way, in a psychogeographical way to try to like undermine, you know, the, the built environment and, and the way that it channels certain activity. Right. So where does the derive go? It doesn't really go anywhere politically. Um, I would say like lasting or fruitful, like the, I guess the manifestation, like the protest movements, right. Or like an attempt to sort of like bracket off a place in time for like expression and in a way like I guess the point is like situationist international in practice you know what they're creating in the 1950s and the 1960s what uh, Raul's talking about I'm not going to try his last name again with revolution of everyday life what does it look like in practice it falls back ultimately to like crime think shit right like it becomes insurrectionary anarchism I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, uh, there's a way in which we can critique the derive uh, based on the way in which the second half of the 20th century went and the way in which the critique of urbanism today uh, or the actual urban environment means that there's very, very little left to discover in the urban environment mm. when you're just wandering around. Mm-hmm. You know, this With it, Google Maps. <laughs> okay, yeah, but even just if you were just to walk aimlessly, I mean... But, but we should define what the derive is. It's like an early situationist idea that you you walk without purpose. Um, and there's like an implication that you're going on some sort of adventure, but you're experiencing like, for example, the different neighborhoods, seeing how they make you feel, interacting them with them in ways that are different than just going to the store and buying something um, but it's it's very vague on what you're supposed to do. Right. And but this is one of their earlier ideas and my interpretation of it is it comes around the same time as unitary urbanism, which is kind of their like utopian uh city planning phase. Mm. And they scrap that in the early sixties. They and so I think the the wandering was sort of like what they were theoretically doing. They were theoretically looking ar- around for who they are, what situationism means, what they can achieve as a group. And I, I don't think they talk much about that after like 64 or something. 
I mean, yeah, there's a there's a way in which, um, right, the uh, economy was uh, very, very rapidly remaking Paris after the war. And, uh, of course, you know, when you're walking around a city, there's rationality in which, you know, how we move and where we go and what is the purpose of our everyday life within that urban environment, within our immediate environment. So the derive was the suggestion, okay, well, what if we sort of um, wandered in the city such that, you know, we weren't following those rationales for, you know, work, consumption, whatever, leisure time, and instead just sort of, uh, you know, move with whatever circumstances we happen to run into. Wouldn't it be curious then if we redrew the cities based on those movements? Mm. And um, yeah, all of that wasn't, uh, you know, geared towards some kind of political program, right? It was about um, the way in which we can... uh, immediately critique our environment while still experimenting with um you know what we have left out of urban life but unitary urbanism wasn't necessarily a political program but they did want to they were describing specifically what a city should look like yeah but they were completely right impractical proposals right (laughs) they were a little too practical for my liking (laughs) well i like that i mean this was the the new babylon idea of uh was it constant Constant, yeah yeah neuenheis uh yeah, yeah like they they it was basically fully automated luxury communism. Mm. It's like, we're going to build a city where the robots do all the work. And also you don't have to live anywhere. You can just like be a backpacker and like, it's just a city of pure youthful leisure and wandering and everything is, mm. uh, they say this. Um, of course he gets kicked out of the group uh, at some point. Uh, he gets expelled. So I think they moved on. That, that's my theory is that these sort of urbanist ideas just fall out of favor with the group as they become a little bit more, I don't know, they double down more on like the, the post Leninist thing that they, their, their origins are from. Yeah. There's like a famous, right. Kind of narrative, uh, that in 62, there was like some kind of fundamental break, but even if you go towards the more, um, you know, let's say politicized later years of the SI, it's not as if there's an actual break in the sort of critique of everyday life and the critique of the, urban environment doesn't appear in those like uh late later sort of um you know uh political diagnostics but that uh they just take on a different form right there's they've matured in in the critical theory right that the, we're talking like about marx's theory of estrangement in the philosophical notebooks then gets taken up you know he never he doesn't explicitly talk about it in the 1860s or but 1870s, continuity but there's continuity yeah in um you know the commodity fetish and and the mystification yeah i think there's this is a stronger reading i think this is a stronger reading so of course earlier you know you have um right this sort of avant-garde background you have the kind of different um you know interventions uh in you know cultural activities and yeah granted things become a little at least a little bit more explicitly politicized all the artists who are producing works of art get expelled from the group but that doesn't mean um that uh, their view of, um, let's say, the avant-garde as the inheritors of modern art and therewith the critique of modernity itself doesn't carry through in their, in their later writings. But I, I see it as like, so, so I think this early stuff allows people to read the Situationist as like a group of activist artists who are like culture jammers. Like that, that was, you know, the great Gen X representation of the situation is, yeah. is that they were they're they're trying to deface advertisements either basically. that or that they're like um cultural critics for pratt institute students to like critique consumerism but i i think that the group was founded and in time deeply understood that their origins in the avant-garde no longer made them very special in an era when 
Like, I think they really believe that, like, the surrealists and the Dadaists and the, the symbolists and all of these avant-gardes before them really actually were the political avant-garde. Like, yeah. when you see the surrealist writing, like, a, a Leninist manifesto or, like, mm-hmm. founding the Fourth International, they thought that that was actually the most avant-garde position, and they were able to understand and represent that through art because, at a point, art was more advanced than political theory or critical yeah. theory. But, but they... In the 60s, or around their founding at least, and more towards the 60s, they understood that art is no longer possible, that moder- like pop art mm. and Dada and surrealism are now totally interchangeable. They're in the same museums. These artists are you know, selling everything the same way. And Andy Warhol understands the artistic avant-garde, but he's certainly not a, a communist. So they're trying to figure out how to put communist politics back in front of the cultural avant-garde. I mean, the founding of the group, the Situationist International, was founded with documents identifying the failures of Dada and surrealism. So it was wasn't simply the case that they were like, oh yeah, we're part of this trajectory. No, they identified how the avant-garde ran into dead ends, mm-hmm. uh, how they ran into uh, you know the problem of you know artistic representation, right through through works. Yeah, it's also because Chaplin was a fascist, right? Charlie Chaplin, yeah. fascist. No. That wasn't part of it. I mean, the problem with Chaplin wasn't that he was... It was that fucking mustache, man. (laughs) No no more flat feet. But listen, if you think about then uh, the sort of early 60s, mid 60s, you follow the critique of workers representation, right? Mm. Which is the same critique of uh, what the the limits of the avant-garde in terms of art as a representation of everyday life, works Mm. of art. So there's continuity there, okay? It just gets... We find it within different registers in the early years of the later years. It's the critique of uh, certain forms of social mediation. Uh, for the avant-garde, right, that is particular works of art that um, right, become representations of some kind of lived experience that uh, um, eclipses lived experience. Uh, for the representation of, you know, through workers' organizations, it becomes the kind of, you know, rejection of the uh, autonomous power of the workers themselves. Right. Structurally... That's the same critique, but mm. within different registers. Right. So I'm, um, I'm, I'm very, yeah, I'm skeptical to this idea that like something happened where, you know, Debord hung out with socialism or barbarism and then all of a sudden they, then they realized that like, uh, yeah, there are problems with art under capitalism. So like their, their critique of art was an entry point to like a larger sort of critique of totality. That's the- yeah, their critique of art was the critique of it as a specialization. Right. Ah, yeah. Right. As something that is independent from our politics, from our, our, our lived reality. And um, of course, when, you know, you know, Duchamp is just sort of putting his signature on anything, then obviously it's the case that it's the artist that is the more valuable commodity rather than the works of art. So that indicates a kind of failure, limitation for avant-garde at the time. What about today? I mean, I feel as though like art is not just dead. Or at least for me, it's dead. You know, I, I can go and I can appreciate old art in a museum or whatever, but I can't think the last time, not that I was ever a big art guy, that I went to like an art gallery and saw some contemporary art that really grabbed me. Certainly, I wouldn't be able to afford it, you know, these days. Like, what is what is art today? I mean, is it? I know it's a money laundering operation and I know it's like uh, it's a commodity. What like how do you view the art world today and what's its relationship to everyday life, if any? I mean, I, I view it with the utmost contempt, really. And disdain. You have I, disdain, I view it with too. Contempt, yeah. yeah. And I think, um, I mean, a part of it, for me at least, I find um, taking seriously a work of art is, 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 is really hard. 
it's a really difficult thing to do to like really look at something for more than like five seconds, but to remain with it. And I think art requires that kind of, um, yeah, exercise of reflection, a little bit of discipline to stay patient with something and to find something that's not explicitly there, but only sort of comes out with you experiencing it. People today, uh, come on, they, they can't stand in front of a painting for more than, t- than five seconds. Uh, so just the ability to look at a work of art, it, I think this is a very, very, um, yeah, this is an endangered experience. What, where does this leave like the potential for human freedom after this? I mean, you've said that you don't think that there's a rational subject anymore. <laughs> you've said that uh, we don't have the attention span to even encounter art in such a way. You know, we have all this this incredible mediation. We have this uh, critical distance to our own exploitation and domination that exists. I mean, where does that leave us? <laughs> where's our Where's our good subject? I mean, we know what the bad subject is. Subject. It's Putin. Right, Who's the right, good right. subject? Is it still the proletariat? I mean, the proletariat exists, right, as both subject and object, but whether or not there's a revolutionary capacity there, I think needs to be constantly reassessed depending on the historical moment, right? I mean, the proletariat exists today in such a diffuse form. I mean, to be proletarianized is also pretty pretty much a universal experience. Right. And... um I think that uh, it would be a tall order to attempt to um, pull together some kind of subjectivity out of that horror. And it is horror. Um, And I'm not even sure that pulling together a subjectivity out of that is the really right way forward. Because the the demand for a subject, right, is the demand for mastery. Mm. And um, Well, you're talking about like trying to spread class consciousness somehow like that could be a version political education or propaganda right like I, I just don't think that that's how the kind of class consciousness that could lead to something like a revolution happens i think that's the, the, that I happens agree. just through the circumstances no i i agree with you i think um i think people could know just how bad things are and why they're so horrible yeah we they all could, know they could have all the consciousness in the world that's not an adequate uh, sufficient condition for a revolution i mean i uh, think that's the leninist failure really <laughs> wow that's 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 one to unpack uh the leninist failure uh put a pin in that one as they say but i i guess a, a question then is so like if if culture and art then begins to become a separate sphere of human uh, activity at least in in the abstract if it becomes abstracted away um, from sociology, from history, from political economy or whatever, what is the relationship between, say, crisis, capitalist crisis, crisis of accumulation and art? So, like, what happens in 2008? We obviously had this, like, mm. this deep opening up of a social conflict that we're obviously very much still living through at this very moment, and the end of which is not even in sight. Um, right. You can include everything from the overthrow of the government in Sri Lanka six months ago to, of course, the Russo-Ukrainian war, uh, two fights against the EU that are happening, two, like, I hate to say it, but, like, Trumpism is a sort of instantiation of, like, various social conflict playing itself out across American society. Uh, what, so, so, like, where does crisis fit into, into this? And periodization, I suppose, yeah. too. 
I mean, it seems like crisis uh, ought not to be theorized, right, as some kind of anomaly. That's probably the, f- the first kind of lesson, right, of the last decade yeah. or longer, that it's the normal condition um, that uh, we live in a state, right, of perpetual incoherence, both economically, politically, socially, culturally, artistically. And so if, if the normal condition is, is that incoherence, is that disorientation, right, that's the kind of baseline um, then, right, there is, uh, regardless of whatever register you have of this social crisis of society at large, um, I mean, it's just, there's, there's no way to, um, yeah. Uh, if there's no crisis in art right now, there's no crisis in the class relation and vice versa. You could say something like that. I mean, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm not sure. There's a way in which you have to. I, mean, I, I don't really pay attention uh, to contemporary art. I don't really Bless know what art is doing. You didn't go to Art Basel this year. You went back home to New York. Yeah, I did. No, I can't. I can't bear it because uh, a lot of contemporary art, right? Art is just sort of embellished CVs of artists. Mm. It's just their biographies. It's just their life stories. People do not give any, you know, autonomy to the objects they produce. They're like, hey, here's my biography in, in visual form. Mm. Uh, you know. Send the grant this way. Right. And uh, I think that has nothing to do with aesthetics. I think that has nothing to do with art. Artists today are basically either publicists or lawyers <laughs> at heart. Or what about money or launderers? Use sa- car salesmen. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. So what does the world do without art then? The world has not had art for a long time already. Well... This was a good episode, I think. Went on a real derive. We went on a derive. Was it okay? Did you hit the... This was exactly what I hoped to have really? from it. Yeah, we haven't seen you in a few years. Well, and, I think you know, um, we, I we... would be a little bit more okay if we could uh, talk about our friends, Jerry yeah. and George yeah. and Elaine. And that's, why not? That's why a not Kramer? Idea. Yeah, why not Kramer? Why not Cosmo? Are you a Seinfeld fan? Uh, I mean, I enjoy it. You could admit you're a sign. I haven't fan. watched it. In I don't know what it means to be a fan. <laughs> what does fandom even mean anymore? This is I, 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 I've seen it and I enjoy it with right. my friends and family. Fair enough. Me too. But you, there's a reason you're not living in uh, the Upper East Side. As a, you, yeah, you I'm, not, to I'm Europe. poor. Yeah. You're living in the Upper East Side of Berlin. <laughs> right. What is that? Uh, no, uh, just north. Just north. Just okay. north. Well, if you want to hear our pro situ take on <laughs> on Seinfeld and the question of whether George Costanza is Jewish, yeah, uh, you can question. join us on the other side of the paywall. Uh, go to patreon.com slash the Antifada. You can sign up just for the month or for the year at a big discount, and we always really appreciate that. And you'll hear at the end of this conversation. Hell yeah, let's do it. See you on the other side. I think every film in some way is fucking propaganda big for Big bunk, Bunker. Big I think bunker. I think Big Bunker honestly yeah. is like the sort of like when we talk about the malaise that everybody has, you know, the cynicism or whatever, it's this, you know, light at the end of the tunnel being this train coming towards us. Yeah. And so where we think we come out on the other side of that, I'm relatively optimistic that, you know, in a 100 years or so we might get to to do the smashy smashy with the rocky rocky <laughs> <laughs> and live on the beach or whatever. Right. But I feel like that's sort of the consciousness <laughs> but, of the but age. But how do you get to the beach? Is that there there has to be a ship 
There has to be there a has shipwreck. To be yeah. The, yeah. And it's the, the same thing in... Um, I wouldn't suggest going near a coast in 100 years. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, the coast is coming to you There's in some highland, yeah. <laughs> it's good. It's but good. this is also the... Uh, what's the movie where the train just can't stop? Uh, oh, the train that couldn't slow <laughs> down. <laughs> Speed. Uh, Snowpiercer. 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 Yeah, I mean, this yeah. is like the... <clears throat> I mean, all these movies are sort of getting at the problem in Snowpiercer, which is if... If the train stops, we will all die. So, yeah, there's this brutal class society. You're all eating bugs in the, the end of the car, and you can fight your way up to the front all you want, but if the train stops, you die. Yeah, yeah. And so do you pull the emergency brake? This, right. like, you know, question right out of the text of Benjamin. Yeah. Um, and I think, basically, if you're a revolutionary communist, your answer is yes. But that's a crazy answer. It's a crazy answer. And we can't really expect anyone to agree with us on that. It's Bordiga in the 70s saying, onward barbarians. You know, like we are the fucking force from outside. What do you think? Do we pull the emergency brake on the train? Uh, uh, Better late than never. (laughs) (laughs) 